I wonder at not wondering. This is the closing line of G.K. Chesterton's poem entitled The Mystery. Chesterton acknowledges the great tragedy that our imaginations often tend to atrophy as we age. Um, yeah. In his autobiography, Chesterton says, I wish there were more time to play. I wish we did not have to fritter away on frivolous things like lectures and literature, the time we might have given to serious, solid, and constructive work, like cutting out cardboard figures and pasting colored tinsel upon them. I woke up this morning uh, to the sound of my six-year-old Jack in his bunk bed singing, uh, singing a little tune. Now, he's in a bunk bed, which means his two-year-old brother is beneath him, still sleeping. So when I woke up, I walked to their room, and my first, <laughs> this is terrible, the first thing I said today was, Jack, shush. <laughs> That's right. I woke up this morning. The first thing I did was stifle my six-year-old's heart song <laughs> so that his brother would stay asleep. Uh, he made his way downstairs, and as we, our normal morning ritual, came down and had his, his cereal. Uh, before he sat down to cereal, he was looking out the, the window, and he looked up in the sky and saw the moon, and above the moon, he saw what was an airplane. So it looked as though, through his eyes, in fact, he asked the question, Dad, it looks like that rocket ship is overshooting the moon. And I, I realized those kind of two things happening back to back were kind of jarring. We, Jack and I woke up in different worlds. We woke up in different conceptual worlds with a different set of assumptions about the way that things work. And my response to him talking about the way that the plane appeared to be, uh, you know, above the moon, but really wasn't. The moon is actually much farther away, Jack, than the plane which is not a rocket ship. And, and then I realized my explanation is so much less cool than, than his. I would like to be in his world, not the one that, that I woke up in, uh, you know, angrily stomping to their room uh, and telling him to be quiet. We've been talking for the past several weeks about Christian formation, about discipleship, and about engaging with scripture as part of our apprenticeship to Jesus. If you've been with us during those weeks, we've covered a couple of points from, from different angles uh, from the passage in 2 Timothy. And Matt has made these, reiterated these, these couple of points. Discipleship always occurs in proximity to others following Jesus. And discipleship relies on practices we are committed to over the long haul that shape and mold us. Our commission as God's people is to go and make disciples. It's central to the life of faith and, and to our mission as followers of Jesus. And part of the work of discipleship, I would want to submit, is the regular exercise of our imaginations. And that is um, maybe not uh, apparent in, in those first two points that we covered, but, but I, I want to kind of bring that to the fore. Um, if we're practicing the same sets of practices week after week in the hopes of being formed, um, I, I believe that's true. I agree 
with, with that statement. I have experienced the fruit of that in my own life, but that cannot be decoupled from the exercise of our imaginations. In fact, that is vital to, uh, to those practices kind of taking root in the way that they will actually make a difference in our spiritual lives and our spiritual development. Our task isn't to deny reality as we exercise our imaginations, but if our hope is limited to what we see in this life, we are, as Paul says, of all people most to be pitied. So much of life keeps us at the surface level, doesn't it? If you've been paying attention to, to news at any point, really, this week maybe especially, our culture is kind of pushing us toward uh, crowding out our imagination, certainly not inviting any imaginative work, but Jesus, it seems, always beckons us deeper, deeper, below the surface. So what would it look like, I wonder, to have our imaginations regularly reinvigorated by God, reawakened by the Spirit, reshaped by Jesus? Because it's true, isn't it? Our, our imaginations are conscripted, and they're constricted Throughout the week, we're preoccupied with any number of daily concerns. Uh, when we encounter Jesus through the scripture and around the table that we'll come to here in a few moments, when we come together as his body, we're invited to reorient our imaginations. What better example of reorienting our imaginations could there be than the Beatitudes that we read together just, just a moment ago? When everything around us, from, from politics to pop culture, pulls us in a different direction, the Beatitudes remind us that the poor, the meek, the hungry, the thirsty are blessed, and we are blessed when we're mistreated for the sake of righteousness. Kind of a different way of seeing things, shaping our lives by the Beatitudes as opposed to the directions that our culture often pulls us. I want to submit this morning that the principal way that we keep our imaginations from atrophying is attentiveness to Scripture. Attentiveness to Scripture. We're going to return to that passage in Luke 21 in a moment, but I'm going to take a roundabout way getting there. I like the way theologian Robert Farrar Capon says it. He says, Christian education is the stocking of the imagination with the icons of Jesus' works and words themselves. Stocking of the imagination. It is most successfully accomplished, therefore, not by catechisms, which is a, a standard summary of, of Christian principles that, that we recite, that purport to produce understanding, but instead by stories that hang the icons, understood or not, on the walls of the mind. We commit Scripture's stories, he said, to the Christian memory because that's the way Jesus seems to want the inside of his believers' heads decorated. Isn't that a great picture? Jesus wants the inside of our heads decorated with Scripture, with its stories, with Jesus' words. We're to decorate the inside of our heads with the kinds of stories that expand our imagination of what God's kingdom is like. And as we do so, we, it makes it possible for us to develop a more vivid picture of what it looks like to live into the reality of God's kingdom in practical ways. Discipleship is looking where Jesus is looking, 
seeing as Jesus sees, or to put it another way, developing the imagination of Jesus. There are a couple of episodes that immediately precede our scripture reading for this morning that I'd like to turn our attention to. In these episodes, we get a sense for how Jesus' imagination, his way of seeing, differs from those around him. He's open to wonder. He's attentive to a deeper reality. The first comes in Luke chapter 21.1. If you have a, a Bible, you might turn there. The scriptures will also be on the screen. He looked up, Jesus looked up, and saw rich people putting their gifts into the treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. He said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. So Luke presents a picture of Jesus here as one who sees beneath the surface level. We can imagine that what would have been most impressive to onlookers in this situation would be the large sums that the rich contribute. As the rich come forward and place extravagant gifts into the treasury, our eyes would naturally land upon them. Our eyes might not even happen upon the widow as she drops in her two small coins. But not Jesus. He's looking here where others don't. He notices what others don't. In a piece that he wrote on prayer, theologian Ben Myers, who actually also wrote the, the children's book on the Apostles' Creed that we just went through over the summer. Myers uses a striking turn of phrase to underscore the point that God often misses what is most obvious on the surface because God doesn't look where we look. Myers says, God is colorblind. All that is wise and powerful and impressive blurs together. God can hardly make out the difference between them. Only the small, secret things are clear and distinct to God's poor eyes. So in a, in a cold, materialistic accounting of this situation with the poor widow, her offering is altogether underwhelming. And yet, Jesus wonders at the widow's gift. He invites us to stop also and to, to wonder at this gift. He prompts us to reimagine what's really going on in this scene. We shouldn't be surprised then that Jesus' evaluation of the widow's contribution captures the imaginations of later Christians as well. The fourth century theologian, St. Ambrose, says this of the widow in Luke chapter 21, reflecting, stopping, pausing, looking at this widow's gift as Jesus does. He says, that precious poverty of hers was rich in the mystery of faith. So were the two coins that the Samaritan of the Gospels left at the inn to care for the wounds of the man who had fallen among the robbers. Mystically representing the church, the widow thought it right to put into the sacred treasury the gift which with, with which the wounds of the poor are healed and the hunger of the wayfarers is satisfied. You catch what's going on there? St. Ambrose's interpretation of this parable is a beautiful example of stocking the imagination with Jesus' works and words. He sees what's going on here with the widow as a kind of second working of what's going on in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Refracted through the lens of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, Ambrose imagines the widow's humble act as having a cosmic, eternal significance. 
much more than two mites. Immediately following Jesus commending the poor widow, Luke presents another scene in which Jesus sees beneath the surface. Pick it up in verse 5. When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. So here, as in the previous episode, even though those surrounding Jesus are looking at the same thing that he is looking at on the surface, they're not witnessing the same reality. The logical response when looking at the architectural splendor of the temple was one of, of awe. Again, however, Jesus sees things differently. He bears witness to a deeper reality. And we wouldn't be surprised if the disciples responded to Jesus' prediction of the temple's destruction by questioning his eyesight. The one who healed the blind really needs to get his eyes checked here. But again, Jesus demonstrates this gift that he has for an altogether different sense of sight, a different imagination, a more robust vision of things. He really has the vision of a prophet here. Indeed, Jesus sounds a lot like the Hebrew prophets, looking upon opulence and predicting its destruction, its downfall. Jesus' prediction here might have brought to his hearers' minds the words of the prophet Jeremiah, who warns a disobedient people not to trust the temple as a source of security. In Jeremiah chapter 7, God tells Jeremiah to stand up in the gate of the Lord's house and instruct the people of Judah as they file past you for worship. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. As though that is what will save you, that will keep you secure. It'll come to an end. These episodes in Luke 21 are just two among many that we could perhaps point to throughout the Gospels in which Jesus sees things differently than those around him. Time and again, we see Jesus doing the unexpected. From the way that he structures his teachings, you have heard it said, but I tell you, to his choice of, of dinner partners, to his healings, seems he's always subverting norms and upsetting expectations. When he visits the house of a synagogue leader whose daughter has recently died in Luke chapter 9, Luke recounts, everyone was weeping and grieving for her. But Jesus said, do not cry, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Talk about a different way of seeing. Talk about a more robust way of imagining the present set of circumstances. So we could perhaps say that, that part of what it means to be disciples of Jesus is to have our imaginations reshaped so that they conform with his. To train ourselves to see beneath the surface of things or beyond what's most materially obvious. What we see time and again from Jesus isn't a denial of reality, but rather it's a witnessing to a reality that is deeper that is more true than what's most readily apparent. Does that make sense? It sort of doesn't, though, right? Perhaps the best example of, of a deeper reality that Jesus bears witness to 
comes in the exchange he has with his disciples. The scripture reading that we read just a moment ago is part of this text. After Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple, Luke tells us, picking it up in verse 7, they asked him, Teacher, when will this be? When will the temple fall? What will be the sign that is about to, the sign that this is about to take place? And he said, Beware that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name and say, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, he kind of begins this laundry list of difficulty that is impending, that will be the sign of the temple's downfall. He says, Do not be terrified. For these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. Jesus goes on to detail all of the hardships that we read just a moment ago, the persecutions that his followers will undergo, but notice that he foregrounds all of these with this simple phrase that is so difficult to abide by, do not be terrified. He tells his followers that a significant part of our discipleship journey will take place in the midst of conflict, of suffering, and of difficulty. His disciples are to imitate him not only by looking where he looks, not only by seeing as he sees, but allowing their reoriented imaginations, their reshaped way of seeing the world to direct their response. They're to respond as he responds which is, as the author of Hebrews says, enduring the cross. Consider the kind of faith-filled imagination it would require to boldly persevere amidst these things. We'll read it again. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, but do not be terrified. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and plagues, and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven, but do not be terrified. But before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name, but do not be terrified. This will give you an opportunity to to testify. Skipping down a couple of verses that we'll return to in a moment. You'll be betrayed, even by parents and siblings, by relatives and friends, but do not be terrified. And they will put some of you to death, (laughs) But do not be terrified. You will be hated by all because of my name. But not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your souls. So in the midst of all of this hardship, the disciples, after Jesus ascends, so not to mention all of these hardships, Jesus is, is gone. He's absent in the body. His followers must not only persevere as his disciples but also get busy making new disciples to this difficult way marked by persecution. And Jesus doesn't say, I think it's important to note, you know, you know, when things settle down a bit, go and make disciples. Or uh, when you flee from persecution, uh, find some people who didn't see you getting beaten and thrown in prison because they'll be better candidates for recruits to the way. Um, likewise, I would submit that neither does he say to us, you know, when your kids are a bit older, go and make disciples. Or when you've finished your education, or when you're married, go and make disciples. 
or when you've achieved some measure of financial security, when business is good, go and make disciples. Or when things slow down after this busy season, because it has been busy, hasn't it? Go and make disciples. No, it's, it's just the opposite. He says, you'll be dragged before kings without the support of family or friends, and it's precisely at that moment, of all the moments, when you're lonely and when your body is broken and bleeding from being dragged, when your throat is so dry that you can't even formulate the words, can barely speak, there is your opportunity to testify. So as we move toward a close here, I want to return to the couple of verses that we skipped over a moment ago in Luke 21. Amid all of these predictions of disaster, of persecution, Jesus gives a peculiar exhortation, which if I'm honest, I kind of wanted to skip over altogether because it's so odd to me. He says in verses 14 and 15, So make up your minds, disciples, not to prepare your defense in advance. Now, as somebody who is always at least trying to be prepared to avoid embarrassment, I don't much like this one. For I'll give you a mouth and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. And I want to respond, Jesus, have you heard me speak when I'm not prepared? So what about this odd command would sustain the disciples in the midst of persecution? I think Jesus' words to the disciples derive some of their staying power, of course, because he's resurrected and the Spirit descends. They receive the gift of the Spirit. But I also think it's because this this promise has staying power because this promise is an echo of a promise that God made to Moses. And they know how that story turned out. In Exodus chapter 4, Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor even now that you have spoken to your servant. Even after I've had this encounter with you, it seems like I'm still stuttering in my attempts to speak with you. I'm slow of speech, slow of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, stubborn as he often is, Who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. So consider the disciples hearing what Jesus says to them here in Luke, reflecting back on this episode with Moses. To borrow Capon's phrase, Jesus wants the disciples' heads decorated with Scripture probably with this passage in particular, when he's giving them this command. Jesus tells them that they don't know the future, and just because the temple, their symbol of collective identity, is standing now, doesn't mean it always will be. And when everything falls, when they're abandoned by loved ones, facing persecution, when they can't summon the words they need, Jesus invites them not to prepare He invites them to call to mind the story of Moses and the Exodus and to remember how God led and provided for him. Surely he will do the same for them. In Acts 7, 
While Stephen is experiencing the very persecution that Jesus prophesies in Luke chapter 21, Stephen, interestingly, goes straight back to the Moses narrative. And what I love is that Stephen's version skips over Moses' self-assessment, that he's slow of speech, slow of tongue. Not only does Stephen leave that part out, but he characterizes Moses as powerful in his words and deeds. Is he misremembering here? I don't think Stephen forgot about Moses' slowness of speech. Instead, I think it's, very, it's, it's that very inadequacy, that dependence upon God, that leads Stephen to remember Moses as powerful in his words. Jesus tells his followers, by your endurance you'll gain your souls. Perhaps you're here this morning and the word endurance isn't one that you'd use to characterize your life of faith as it currently stands. Certainly not power. Perhaps it's characterized instead by starts and stops at best. And perhaps what you need is not to grit your teeth, but rather to recapture the wonder of being a disciple of Jesus, the one who consistently sees a deeper reality and invites us to partake of that reality. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're in need of hope and you'd hear the words of the resurrected Jesus who has defeated death. Though you're killed, not a hair on your head will perish. And perhaps hardships or or busyness, or a particularly trying season, or a season of transition, or relational conflict, or estrangement have stifled Jesus' call to be a loving disciple and to go and make disciples. And Jesus' word to us today is not to hide in fear, but to fully inhabit whatever difficulty you're facing without succumbing to fear. Do not be prepared in advance. I will give you words, Jesus says seems to suggest that there's often a, a sizable gap between what Jesus considers a good opportunity for testifying, for bearing witness, and what we would consider a good opportunity for testifying and bearing witness. There's persecution involved. There's hardship involved. This morning as we approach the table, if that's you, you might ask God to do what only God can do, to reshape your imagination so that you might see opportunities to love that you wouldn't notice or you wouldn't allow yourself to notice without his help. Take a step of faith and meet Jesus here. Would you stand with me as we prepare to approach the table? Heavenly Father, we recognize our need of you we thank you that you are with us in the midst of great difficulty. We thank you for your sight, your insight, your vision. And we ask that as your disciples, you would help us to have our imaginations reshaped, conformed to your imagination. That we would look where you look, and see as you see, respond as you respond. 
that we would look at the most difficult of situations not as something to flee from or something that would elicit fear and the responses that come from fear. Lord, but we would see those as opportunities for you to work, even when we're unprepared. Trusting that you will give us words, you will give us speech. Increase our trust in and dependence upon you. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.